Welcome to Eagles, Globes, and Anchors, the strategically-minded podcast of the Marine Corps War College, covering the intersection of strategy, security, and warfare. Welcome to Eagles, Globes, and Anchors, the strategically-minded podcast of Marine Corps University. Today we're discussing strategic communication and informational power. My guest today is Mr. Don Bishop. Mr. Bishop is the Donald Bren Chair in Strategic Communications here at Marine Corps University. He served as a Foreign Service Officer, first in the U.S. Information Agency and then in the Department of State for 31 years. Specializing in public diplomacy, political military affairs, and East Asia, he attained the rank of Minister Counselor in the Career Service. Prior to his time in the State Department, Mr. Bishop served as an Air Force Second Lieutenant in Vietnam, served a tour in Korea, and taught military and world history at the United States Air Force Academy. During his 31 years at the State Department, Mr. Bishop spent 25 years overseas, with 13 of those years in Hong Kong, Taiwan, and China. He was detailed by the State Department to the Pentagon to be the Foreign Policy Advisor to Commandant James Conway, and then to the same duties for the Air Force Chief of Staff. His final State Department assignment was to Kabul as Chief of Public Diplomacy and Strategic Communication at our embassy in Afghanistan. Fortunately for us in the MCU family, in 2016, Mr. Bishop came to MCU as the Bryn Chair of Strategic Communication, a position sponsored by Marine Corps University Foundation through a generous gift from Mr. Donald Bren, where he focuses on the I and dime, informational power, informational competition, disinformation, propaganda, and hybrid warfare. Mr. Bishop, thanks for coming on the show. Well, it's great to be here. I might share with uh, listeners that out at embassies and consulates, uh, foreign service officers and their families love Marines. Of course, the Marine Security Guard attachments uh, protect the embassy and the families, but they also organize runs. They organize the annual Marine Ball, which is the biggest social event of the year, and everybody's favorite, the chili cook-offs. <laughs> uh, so it's great for me to be here at Quantico, see how Marines work, train, and study. Well, excellent. Well, we are delighted to have you on the podcast. Before we start the discussion, tell us a little bit about yourself. What sparked your interest in strategic communication? Well, how did I get my start? I remember as an ROTC cadet uh, reading about psychosocial power. This was an early label for what we now call soft power. And I remember very distinctly being quite excited when the concept was introduced to me. And in Vietnam, when I was on civic action runs in the villages, I puzzled about how we could win over Vietnamese villagers, Vietnamese farmers, getting their support and their cooperation when their own world was so different and we didn't even speak their language. And here I'd like to mention how a Marine Corps publication, uh, there are some copies at the, in the library, the Unit Leader's Personal Response Handbook, published in 1968, helped me understand how to deal with the challenge of communicating with the Vietnamese. And its lessons about understanding and behavior really stuck with me. And I thought most of its lessons could be applied in Iraq and Afghanistan. And after Vietnam, I attended the Defense Information School to become a public affairs officer. And these were experiences that helped me get started. And when I became a foreign service officer in the old U.S. Information Agency, everything came to bear. And so you had mentioned the precursor to soft power if you could help us tease out those concepts, we hear about a difference. You know, five, ten years ago, it was the difference between hard power and soft power. We also have heard about smart power, sharp power. How do those 
differentiate from one another? How do they relate to one another? Can you just give us a, an overview? Okay, well, that's, uh, that's a large topic uh, worth uh, <laughs> easily an hour by itself. Uh, but let me give you <laughs> well, some wave, <laughs> wave tops. Um, so every Marine understands hard power. That's a military force, show of force, uh, threat of force, use of force. But it also can include things like uh, economic sanctions and the occasional use of coercive diplomacy. Now, a country can be said to have soft power when people in other nations admire its society and values and want to follow its example toward prosperity and openness. And the United States has always had a generous amount of soft power, and few dispute that American soft power helped win the Cold War. Other soft power champs uh, in our own time include China, United Kingdom, France, and South Korea. And the film Crazy Rich Asians, uh, that gave a boost to Singapore's soft power. Mm. Now, we get the smart power. Uh, it starts with military and economic power, but it adds in soft power, alliances, global development, economic ties, and public diplomacy all combine smartly. So it's an intelligent uh, blending of many different forms of uh, power and attraction. Now, now we come to sharp power. Experts have understood the concept for a long time, but it got that label in 2017. It's a way to describe how authoritarian nations use their influence to pierce, penetrate, and perforate the information and political environments of other nations. Uh, often using the internet. The aim is to influence the leadership and people of the target nation by manipulating or distorting the information that reaches them. And here, the activity of Russia's uh, internet research agency that we read so much about a few years ago, along with its bots and trolls, offer an example. And we all know the Russians uh, set up fake websites, uh, pretended to be Americans, how they tried to aggravate the, the divisions within our own country. And Russia's broadcasting networks, RT and Sputnik, are much in the business of distorting information. Uh, and alas, other authoritarian countries are learning from their example. So help us understand the distinction then between sharp power as you identify it and propaganda. You know, during the Cold War, I would have characterized those actions as propaganda on the part of the Soviet Union, today you identify it as sharp power on the part of Russia. Is that just a new name for an old idea, or is there something different about what's happening today? No, I think you're on to something. Propaganda is communication uh, that always has something false within it. Ordinary writing of stories, ordinary speeches, even ordinary spin, that may be shaping a story in a way you hope will appeal to people, will win support. But when you add anything false into what you're saying, then it becomes propaganda. And so, yes, the use of propaganda uh, directed at us, for instance, uh, yes, indeed has falsehood attached, stories that can't be verified. And so, yes, I'd say uh, smart power and propaganda have some relationship. Or sharp power and sharp propaganda. Power. Yes, yeah, sharp power. I wonder if maybe what is different today versus what we saw during the Cold War is that that connection to mass communication that you had mentioned the Twitter bots sure. and the bot farms. That yes, well, 
think back just a few decades ago, uh, once upon a time, perhaps, people got their news from their, their news about the world or about our own society from newspapers and radio and television. Those were the medium, they, media that they turned to, for instance, when they decided how to vote. In part, in that communications environment a few decades ago, editors had a role. They filtered out lies. They filtered out crazy ideas. So there were mediators between uh, stories that came out and the news that reached people, generally constructively. Now, you compare that to now, uh, the old system was very slow. But now, with, uh, on your cell phone, you, at the speed of light, come to you all kinds of facts and stories and narratives and, uh, and ideas. Uh, but they come to you unfiltered. And so it's hard for an ordinary person to sometimes distinguish between what's true and what's false. For instance, I would say that um, I get a lot of what I call over-the-transom emails from mostly retired friends, and they're always pretty interesting. But sometimes I say, whoa, that is just not true. For instance, every once in a while I get an email that says, even when a Congress member of Congress is defeated, they get their pay for the rest of their life. So this is not true. But the intent of that email is to make people carry a grudge about Congress. And it, it gives the idea that, that they think of themselves as some kind of privileged characters uh, when that's not true. So in a way, that simple email uh, erodes, weakens our trust in Congress and the legislative system. And I think this ties into another pair of concepts that I would like you to help our listeners differentiate, and that's between strategic communication and information operations. Are they the same thing? What is distinct about them, and how do they collectively add into or contribute to the United States informational power? Well, yes, there was a lot of uh, buzz about strategic communications, or STRATCOM, uh, in Iraq and Afghanistan, and many millions were spent on STRATCOM, mostly going to contractors. But there never was one definition of what STRATCOM was about. Some thought it was just plain public affairs on steroids. Others thought of it as a kind of information war. So our efforts uh, that were all labeled STRATCOM were all, all over the map and perhaps ineffective because of that. Now, information operations has been a traditional military field for decades, formally, it uh, combines electronic warfare, counter-network defense, operational security, psychological operations, and cyberspace operations. And now that traditional thinking has been enlarged to OIE, operations in the information environment, and it adds civil affairs and comstrat, or public affairs. And I think it's a very promising uh, way to think about informational power being able to combine all of those tools. Now, in my classes, I urge uh, Marine students to be aware of other elements of Uncle Sam's informational power, the State Department's public diplomacy with overseas audiences, its Global Engagement Center, which is wrestling with terrorist communications. 
uh, and the U.S. government's international broadcasting networks, like the Voice of America, Radio Free Asia, Middle East Broadcasting Networks. They broadcast in 71 languages, but I found that not many OIE people know about their work. Hmm. When I was coming up in the field, my my research in political science originally had to do with the Soviet Union and, and post-Soviet security. And so Radio Free Europe, Radio Liberty was a mainstay for those of us in the 80s and 90s. It's interesting that, that fast forward, uh, it's been a couple of years, that we don't have the same level of appreciation or understanding today of the good work that's been done across the globe in this area. Yes, and Radio Free, Liberty, Radio Free Europe, Radio Liberty, uh, still is broadcasting. Now, not so much with not so much focus on the Soviet Union and the old satellites, as we used to call them. But for instance, uh, in Afghanistan, you can listen to Radio Free Europe, Radio Liberty in Dari and Pashto. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they're still very much in the communications business and still an important uh, instrument of American informational power. It's just I think their work needs to be, as you said, known more widely. Mm-hmm. Well, and I think there's an important distinction. As we were brought up, there was a recognition that what was broadcast over Radio Free Europe, Radio Liberty was true that the United States did not publish falsehood through those venues, and that any sort of public affairs had to be true, that we would not propagandize. You talked about the key to propaganda being a kernel of a distruth or or some sort of disinformation incorporated, that that wasn't allowed through public affairs. It wasn't allowed through Radio Free Europe, Radio Liberty, Radio Asia. When I, when I think information operations, I tend to think of the potential for, I mean, you think of psyops, you think of disinformation, you think of intentionally misleading for a particular tactical or strategic effect. So now that the, the umbrella for OIE is broader, how do we keep those streams separate? So there is what the United States will always be truthful about, predominantly because we don't propagandize to an American audience, and where we might incorporate elements of tactical or strategic deception. Yes. Uh, my thinking about uh, deception or about uh, psychological operations is that they've traditionally been focused on a theater or perhaps a battle space. And I think uh, most journalists who, uh, who, who are embedded with units and who report on military affairs uh, they understand that there is always going to be a role for deception in military operations, but that it's it's limited in its space and its reach. It's generally directed right at an enemy unit, so with leaflets or broadcasts. So I'd say that journalists and policymakers uh, are always apprehensive about uh, deception being something larger than that. But if it's focused on a particular fight or a particular area, in my own view, it's not a threat to that larger structure that you've alluded to, which is that, the, that communications by the United States, uh, by the United States government, are truthful and they're attributed. Mm-hmm. So both need to be the case. Yeah, which I think is also a key difference between what we are doing as a as the representatives of the United States government and then what we would see through Russian disinformation. That attributed piece is interesting. You know, I've got 
a pretty broad set of folks who I'm friends with on Facebook. And from time to time, I will see them post things, different people will post things. And I feel this almost moral compulsion to, to comment, you know, this source is a Russian propaganda machine, you know, this is coming. And they don't, they see something that aligns with their particular beliefs on a position and, and they share it on their Facebook wall. And they've probably gotten it from somebody who they trust. And but it's not attributed to – there's no red flag that says this is a Russian government piece of information and these are red-blooded Americans who love their country, but they parrot ideas that are clearly originating from Russia, as you had indicated before, as an intent – with the intent to spread disagreement or division among the American people using a social media platform to do it. Your recollection reminds me of uh, – I was in Nigeria at the time of 9-11 – and right after the attacks and the fall of the towers, uh, the Nigerian media were kind of a buzz. And here and there, you'd read articles that would say, well, we know that the attacks were arranged by Israeli intelligence. The reason we know is because all the Jews who worked in the towers were, it was whispered they shouldn't come to work that day. Now, this was utterly and completely false, actually unimaginable. Uh, you can count the number of uh, Jews who were killed, and uh, the idea that Mossad was going to arrange this is just it's just nonsensical. So this was a false idea, though, that was and, and unattributed. Nobody stood up and said, we know this to be the case, and we will... Uh, we'll give you the evidence. Nobody said that. So it was an idea that came into circulation. You know, things happened so fast uh, at that time. Uh, you know, we, we had other things on our plate than trying to decide where that idea came from. But I've always thought it was a case of disinformation that was inserted into African newspapers and talk radio at, at the time. It's not that so many people believed it, but that it kind of wasted time when Nigeria and many other countries had to think about uh, what they could do to help combat terrorism. This notion of the Israelis were somehow involved, I, I, it was just tremendously unhelpful, mm -hmm. to say the least. Yeah, sure. One spreads an anti-Semitic uh, yeah. flavor to what was oh. clearly not. Uh, yes. Uh, yeah. So let's build on this time that you've spent uh, in embassies and consulates overseas where you worked public affairs. You worked with special forces deployments. You, you certainly were uh, a political advisor to the Commandant of the Marine Corps and Chief of Staff of the Air Force. What lessons do you have for those in uniform for how public diplomacy can help them better achieve their mission? So yes, I I worked a lot of ship visits, Navy ship visits in Hong Kong and China, uh, special forces training, the Nigerian battalions for peace enforcement duties in other African countries, and different COCOM exercises in Bangladesh and Nigeria. And what I noticed was that the public affairs officers in in the deploying units, their first goal was to communicate the story back home to the United States. And they, and they knew how to do that. They had the skills from the Defense Information School, and they had support to be able to get the stories um, you know, into the American news stream. 
But what they didn't know was how to tell the same good story to audiences in the host nation. And they lacked knowledge of the local media. They didn't speak or write the local languages. Uh, they didn't know how to, uh, to write a story in a way that would interest the local readers and would support the idea of partnership with the United States. And the simple answer for what, what they couldn't do, simple remedy, is that they needed to work with the public affairs section of the American embassy. The embassy has people that speak the local language. They have both American and local employees who know the media uh, from end to end in that country. Uh, they know how to organize press conferences and so on. So that there was, that once a unit got linked up with the public affairs section, then everything could move out smartly. Now, this needs not just to arrive at the embassy, shake hands, and say, let's work together. It means the embassy needs to be bought into the planning of the event uh, overseas a little ahead of time so that uh, schedules can be cleared and resources brought together to do this. So when I give talks at the Defense Information School, my big lesson is the outcome of every exercise, operation, ship visit, HADR, will always be better when the embassy is engaged and engaged early on, even before arrival. That makes good sense. And is that, I would think of functional alignment, that Comstrat personnel would be the ones reaching out to public affairs. Yes. But should the operational unit itself, should the leadership team be reaching out or the COCOM do the reaching, or should it should we just allow the communication specialists, the former public affairs officers, to be the ones to make that connection? Well, it's, it's natural that the planning staffs, perhaps at the COCOM, perhaps at the numbered Air Force, at the fleet level, it's natural that they should reach out to their direct counterparts in the public affairs sections at the embassies. But of course, many of the events that might be organized to tell the story uh, are going to involve commanders. They're the individuals who know the operation best. Uh, they're the ones who can best portray how it's a partnership. So inevitably, what might begin with public affairs officers talking to one another is going to involve ambassadors and it's going to involve generals uh, and commanders. So uh, I think uh, once an initial contact is made at whatever level, it can be from the bottom or it can be from the top, then things will unfold. But of course, it takes a little while to do this. And so that's why it's important to get started early. So this is a rich field. And it, it seems like in the last three or four years, there has been a lot of movement and a lot of growth particularly as we have moved to information being the new seventh warfighting function. Let's spend a minute and let's talk about that. A lot of people think that just means cyber. You have a broader interpretation. Talk to us about how you feel this seventh warfighting function can be best conceptualized to provide the most value to the United States. So my take on this very large subject is that cyber is communication between microprocessors. Now, we all know its benefits, but it's possible for adversaries 
to surveil the internet, to intercept information flows, block information flows, disrupt the communications, or even steal the data. That's all in the what I'd call the cyber, the cyber realm. And because cyber is very much about threats that are today or tomorrow, and it's in the news, it's so so new and so immediate that it's kind of crowded out the other half of other necessary half of operations in the information environment. And it's what I call what I call information, but others call influence. And what I call information is about the ideas that are flowing on the network. Cyber is the networks. Information is the ideas on the networks. Now, this information is more than facts or knowledge or data. It's also logic and theory and beliefs, judgments, norms, values. It's ideas. A nation relies upon and deploys ideas to win cooperation, coalition, alliances. Takes ideas to inspire confidence in partnership with the United States. So that's why I say, it's a little simple, I know, but I say cyber is electrons, information is ideas. And you need to work in both fields. And I suppose staffs that work OIE uh, need to include both cyber people and people who studied history and political science and uh, philosophy and economics and all the other uh, fields of the humanities and the social sciences so that there can be a good uh, comet blending of these different tools to achieve positive effects. So if our listeners wanted to know more about probably the information influence side of that equation, where can they look? Okay, well, I'd say that uh, I read every week a newsletter that's published by the Pell Center at Salve Regina University up in Rhode Island. It's the university that uh, cooperates a lot with the Naval War College. Their Active Measures newsletter gives you a dozen of the latest stories that talk about disinformation and cyber and um, uh, fake news and, and all these different challenges. And so um, subscribing to that free newsletter, I think, gives an opportunity. It doesn't flood your inbox because it's just once a week, but it gives you a fill-up on what's going on and what the latest buzz in is the field. And uh, then I would also say that uh, any professional in this area, in addition to studying specifics about cyber or, or news or the internet, you can't go wrong by including in your reading books and articles that enhance your understanding of our own nation and its values. I think our, our exemplar here is uh, now retired, uh, General Mattis. Mm -hmm. He reads so much, he has full command of practically every military specialty, but he's very keen on understanding of American society and our values. He talks about enlightenment values. He talks about freedom of speech, freedom uh, to worship, and so on. And so every Marine's readings needs to include uh, some of that kind of reading understanding our own country better so that we can know what to communicate, what appeals to make, what our difference is in the world. 
and why other nations should partner with us. Uh, and so I think those are, those are key. Mm-hmm. Great. Thank you. So last question for you. What are you reading right now that our listeners should know about? This does not have to be related to strategic communication or the yeah, power of information. Well, my master's degree is in military history. Uh, strange for a foreign service officer, but uh, not one I, with your background. <laughs> no, that's right. I, but it's it's very useful, and I continue to read in the area. Uh, for instance, I'm reading right now about World War One, and uh, boy, that was a easier and simpler media environment. But some of these things we're talking about, disinformation, propaganda, were very much part of that war. And uh, different countries had different ways that they both propagandized or defended against uh, propaganda. Uh, But it's a rich field uh, for study. And uh, anyway, that's that's what I'm reading. The other thing is I always try to keep up with uh, information about Franklin Roosevelt's four freedoms. And the four freedoms, uh, many people have seen the paintings by Norman Rockwell that describe the four freedoms. But if, if, uh, if I'm asked, what is America about in the world or what are America's goals? Uh, you know, you can spend days on seminars, courses, but if you want to carry in your backpack version, you can't go wrong with freedom of speech, freedom of worship, uh, freedom from want, freedom from fear. Those are still deep inside the American character. So just put uh, four freedoms on your, uh, you know, your list of things to be alert for. Great. Well, Mr. Bishop, thank you so much for coming on the show. To keep up with the good work of Marine Corps University, follow us on social media at at Marine Corps U. Thanks to our producer, Jen Padgett-Howe, our show manager, Captain Matt Brewer, and the Marine Corps University Foundation for their support. I'm your host, Becky Johnson. Thank you for listening to Eagles, Globes, and Anchors, the strategically-minded podcast of Marine Corps University. This concludes the EGA podcast. Thank you for joining us. The views expressed in this podcast reflect those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the views, policies, or positions of the United States Marine Corps or the Department of Defense. You can follow the Marine Corps War College on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at at College. And as always, our podcast music is Stuck in Traffic by Romero. Have a great day.